Public Enemy's Minister of Information, Professor Griff, celebrates the 30-year anniversary of the best hip-hop album ever. Thursday, June 28, 2018, at the Jam Handy. Witness a special behind-the-music unsung tribute to Public Enemy's It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back album. Hip-hop performances from Mahogany Jones, Kari Way Frazier, and more will honor the landmark album. Um, okay, so we're back in effect. Uh, Detroit is different, and it's completely different this time. We're in D.C., um, being in Washington, D.C., another chocolate city, uh, continuing the interviews of people I know, Chris Shorter. Uh, now I got Corinda Washington in full effect, uh, somebody that I've known and like we've worked as contemporaries on different things as cultural creatives. Yes. Uh, when I think of pr providing stages for poets, rappers, singers, dancers, and you know black people are creative you know you, a black person will be doing something and then it's like, like don't label me that and you know you gotta call them whatever they say they want to do mm -hmm. but corinda's been doing that for years uh corinda washington how are you i'm good kari thank you for having me i'm so excited to be here most definitely and uh in your new position you're always like kari you need to do this you need to do that always providing opportunities and i'm still like going through the forum like my team <laughs> It's like it's like government contracts that just possibly I could grasp yes. if I just sit down and do the paperwork. Yes, sir. You know, so um, I need to do that paperwork this weekend. OK, please do. And I will probably do that like sometime in June or something. <laughs> um, but as we're talking about that, Corinda, uh, let's talk a little bit about your Detroit story. But before we get into that, what are you doing now? Why are you in D.C.? I am in D.C. Um, as of October, I am Chief of Staff of the Office of Partnership and Engagement at Homeland Security Headquarters. Mm -hmm. um, prior to that, what caused me to move out here is I took a job within our private sector office at headquarters as an external affairs specialist. And in the seven years that I've been out here, it's just been amazing at the, the level of uh, progression that I've been able to have. And now to culminate my career at Chief of Staff is just amazing. Okay. All right. So partnership, give that title again. Cause I know, I'm like, right? what does that, yeah. What, what yeah, are you doing every day? Trust me. Even Congress is like, what is that office again? We're only three years old. Mm -hmm. Um, the office of partnership and engagement is as a result of a merger that former secretary Johnson created. Um, when he looked at the external, um, affairs functions at headquarters, we noticed that all these offices were kind of spread out. And so he brought a number of offices together to create mm -hmm. this new office of uh, partnership and engagement. And I'm serving as the first chief of staff wow. of that office. Congratulations. Thank Congratulations. you. Thank you. As they say black girl magic. Yes. <laughs> making it happen. Yes. In different spaces and places. And then still like young, but been there for seven years. Like time flies. Cause I remember when you first moved out this way. Right. That was a fast seven. That was a fast seven. I'm looking back on it. It'll be seven years next month. And I'm looking back on it like, how? Where did that seven years go? Um, also looking at how blessed I am because of the levels of promotions that I received from the time that I started seven years ago. There are some people, my colleagues and some of my subordinates who haven't reached the mm -hmm. level that I'm at right now and mm -hmm. they've been with the government over 20 years so I, I know that I'm blessed mm -hmm. and I'm just kind of keeping myself grounded and humble so that I can make sure that I'm I'm doing what I need to do to better myself for, for whatever my next move is all right so as you talk about grounded and humble let's start with the right ground off rip Detroit uh, your Detroit story uh, how did you or your family make it to Detroit 
So I have a really unique story. My parents have been married, I believe this year will be 45 years uh, strong. Black uh, love. Black That's love. Powerful. They still have date night, which is amazing. That's powerful. Um, my parents met in Flint. I'm single and I don't do date <laughs> Right? Um, I'm, listen, I'm taking notes, right? I'm like, my day is coming. I'm taking notes. Um, but they met in Flint. So mm. my mom is from Clearfield, Pennsylvania. It's a really small yeah, town. Yeah, I was going to say, what is that? <laughs> it's a really mm. small town near Penn State. Okay. Uh, so she's from Clearfield. My dad is from Chicago. Hmm. My dad. Whereabouts is, in Chicago? Uh, Southside Chicago. Mm. Okay. Um, he's, his family stayed, and I'm losing the handphones. His family stayed in uh, one of the projects that's now demolished, but mm. he grew up in Southside. He graduated from DuSable High School mm. uh, in Chicago. And his mother remarried and had like five more children. And so okay. he got out of the service and moved to Flint to help his mom with his the, little the his siblings. Kids. Yeah. Well, my mom. Clearfield is all white. My grandfather was the pastor of the local church, and when I would go visit in the summer, people at the mall would know that we were related to him because we were the only black people in the town. <laughs> so they would say, you must be Reverend Henry's grandchildren. We're like, yeah, because there's no... So my mom left at 18 because she felt she wanted to marry a black man, and she knew she couldn't find a black man in Clearfield. Ain't that so, so she moved Ain't to so. Detroit, Flint area, because her brother had moved there to work for GM. Okay, because I was going to say she could have went to Philadelphia. But, nah, okay. she wanted to go there, and and, my, and her older siblings, who were twins, uh, sisters, they had moved to Detroit. One is a nurse, and one was a, is a teacher. We're, they're both retired now, but was mm -hmm. a teacher. And so they had all just converged upon Detroit. So at 18, my mom left home and was like, I'm going to go find me a black man. Well, she found my dad, thank God, because I of, wouldn't be here. It's <laughs> a lot of black men in Detroit, so yes. Right, yes. Uh, so they met on... Um, uh, was Mott Community College's campus. My dad mm. said he saw my wow. mom in the cafeteria and was like, I got to get to know her. She said she saw him with his suitcase. Like, who was this guy? Like, why is he walking around with a suitcase? Anyway, fast forward through the story. They got engaged. They got married. Wow. Um, my dad's siblings was driving my mom crazy, and so was his mother. And so um, she was like, I'm moving to Detroit with or without you, but we're leaving on whatever date. And they moved to Detroit, and hmm. then came my brother and I. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's how I, I ended up being a Detroiter mm -hmm. by some transplants. So who you could have been a Flint. You should have been a Flint. Could have been a Flintstone. Mm -hmm. My dad could have convinced my mom to move to Chicago, but being the woman that she was, is I didn't see her going to Chicago. Okay, so uh, Detroit, what what community? Where did you guys stay? Northeast side. My parents are still there. Okay. Uh, Van Dyke and Otter Drive on Bliss Street. Wow. And uh, my dad is retired. My mom, she claims she's retired, but so not, and has done... Um, community relations and community affairs and community development so um that's my hood okay van dyke outer drive uh that's where i go to randazzles to this day you know it right there on outer go drive to, go to randazzles get so my, that's uh, you know where the railroad tracks are yep okay that next street that's bliss that's the street i grew up on ain't that something mm -hmm. ain't that something yeah, and then so. also cut uh, uh, spent uh, spent many a dollars at the good 007 when it was open. <laughs> oh my god, the one that my mom got shut down. <laughs> yes, it, it does. Hey, <laughs> what's so crazy is um, what's so crazy is the night before uh, the night before like the last person was murdered in there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I was like, this is crazy. Like my friends were going because like a, a lot of my, um, just a lot of my social circle. Like even though we're like Rosa Parks and that Davidson area, right. but everybody like grew up. Uh, one of my closest friends, his whole family is from like that Persian neighborhood. Got it. So yeah, yeah, we yeah. would always be. I mean, not just there. Uh, just like all those like little you know some of the just neighborhood bars around here mm-hmm. and just that community is like it stands out pretty as woman like, and all them other places lord but no not clear. even just like like the c-note lounge yeah you know um, yeah you know uh that neighborhood yeah. is like the neighborhood when i think of like just hanging out yes that's where we would hang out yes. most of the time in my in my 20s we that was the neighborhood now it's like i just go over there to go to rent i'm like my grandma i go over there <laughs> to go to rent dazzles <laughs> you probably run into my fruit. mom yes you yes know? so uh but yeah that place uh it had its days mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It, so it being shut down i i hey I understand. I understand. It was it was it was getting wild in there. Yes, yes. Wow, it was like a shooting every other day that summer. Yeah, it's, the struggle was real. Yeah. So mm-hmm. so that community. Mm-hmm. Um and and what what schools did you go to school over there? So yes and no. Um, we were over near Pershing. I went to uh, Mason. Mm-hmm. Then I went. Well, my parents ended up buying. We were renting, mm-hmm. so my parents bought in the third grade, and that's the wow. year that I moved to Bliss Street. Okay. And so I went to Law Elementary, which mm-hmm. is right there in the neighborhood. Um, and then for middle school, my mom just flipped the script a little bit. She was running a nonprofit, doing after school programming, and she's like, you know, I need flexibility. I need you all closer to me. So my brother went to Farwell. I didn't want to go to the same school as my brother, so. So he went to Farwell. I went to Nolan, mm. and it was a magnet school. So we were in a gifted and talented program there at Nolan. In the eighth grade, I took the exam that everybody does. So Cass King or Renaissance, which one are you going to choose? I chose uh, King um, mm. and the MSAT program, Math, Science, and Applied Technology. So I went to King for high school, even though my neighborhood school was either Osborne or Persian. Okay, so King. Uh, King, yes, KC nine six. KC, so um, and, and I started, I ended at Northwestern, but started. That's where my brother with, graduated with, from. Yeah, Northwestern, Northwestern. is uh, good old MF. Your alumni association is deep. Y'all, yeah, y'all I'm, do a lot. I'm, uh, I'm the president of the alumni. Are currently. you serious? Yeah, yeah, oh, I'm yeah, had to yeah. tell my brother. Oh yeah. my god. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Interesting. Every every first Saturday is a very interesting conversation <laughs> you all are connected though i give you credit so let's talk a little bit about msat uh casey what was that like uh what was the culture there when you were going so i love or re- really we can roll back and even go to nolan because nolan as uh i do with uh, one of my clients the water park wayne county aquatic center mm-hmm. and a lot of the students that i do we do this thing called playing painting with the splash with the rise of trait now okay and a lot of the students that come there are nolan students okay so uh what was nolan like when you went so nolan was the prim of the pro- cream of the pro- uh, crop in the sense of magnet middle schools mm-hmm. because you had barber you had um some of the others Hallie, but, where i went Hallie, okay whatever yes. but nolan <laughs> th- this is the what raiders. i appreciated about <laughs> nolan yes the raiders uh, nolan was a diverse middle school so because mm-hmm. The Chaldean community, the um, Iraqi Christians, we call it Chaldeans, mm-hmm. but the rest of the world knows them as Iraqi Christians, 
we're living on that seven mile John R. Yeah. Woodward area. The half of Nolan, little Baghdad, as we call little it. Baghdad, um, mm-hmm. half of Nolan was Chaldean, and mm-hmm. so my middle school, my introduction to culture and communication, which is one of my passions now, started in sixth grade hmm. at Nolan because here I was immersed in a Middle Eastern culture that as a black kid from the east side of Detroit was just kind of like, where where does this fit in? And, and, and how do these uh, families immigrate to Detroit? How did they converge upon Detroit? And so Nolan was that training ground for me, really, that excited me about culture Mm. and wanted to reach out and reach beyond the Detroit city limits and see what this world had to offer me. Um, I learned about Arabic gum. I learned about baklava. I learned about dolma. I I mean, just getting into and embedding in the culture and then sharing African-American experience with Mm. my Middle Eastern friends Um, Mm. and then seeing how some of my friends didn't come back seventh and eighth grade. I was trying to figure out, well, what happened to so-and-so? They're like, oh, they got sent back home to the old country. Like, why they get sent back home to the old country? Oh, because they saw them out with that black boy. Mm. Oh, because our our girls can't date black men. You know, all of that started sixth grade having some very difficult conversations with my parents. Like, how come they can't date black people? I don't Mm. understand what that's about. Um, So middle school was was great. I loved every bit of it. And a lot of us are still friends today. Okay, that's unique. And that neighborhood is like one of the few neighborhoods where you do have um, as it's such an Arab influence in Metro Detroit region. Right, Right. But actually Arab people in the city of Detroit, that's one of the few neighborhoods where that exists because most of it is like Dearborn. Some in Hamtramck, but definitely like the outskirts or either other western suburbs, right. but actually inside the Detroit city limits. And the dynamic there was my mom. I mentioned she ran a nonprofit organization. Her non- what's uh, what nonprofit? Emmanuel Community House Inc. And mm-hmm. um, she did development in that area. Well, her nonprofit was on John R. The crazy thing about it, the western side of John R. West side of John R. Was mm-hmm. all Chaldean. Mm-hmm. The east side was all black. Her, her nonprofit set at the intersection of those cultures and was able to convene those cultures. She did English as a first language classes. A lot of times it was the place where the Chaldean women who were going to get their education at Wayne State did their internships at her, at her nonprofit. Yeah. So even seeing going out and talking and speaking and running into some of these business owners, these yeah. grocery store owners, and they're like, you're Karen Washington's daughter. Uh, I remember when you were a little tight. My wife interned with your mom or your mom helped me get that building on on John R in Nevada. It just it, it opened my eyes up to the influence that she had which basically has transformed into the influence that I'm having now in my line of work. Okay, and that just runs me right to the as much as that exists in that community, there always has been like a um a um like a a a, a, a some tougher discussions between the Arab and the black community specifically as you talk about like uh like I remember the ownership of the 007 like Mm -hmm. that was like one of my closest uh right now he owns what's so crazy is like he's part owner of um another one of clubs downtown there's a lot of these things like uh uh, what is that? The uh, the White House downtown. Okay. So, uh, you know, you have this uh, unique relationship between a lot of people in the black community feeling like Arab people are exploiting black people. Mm-hmm. But Arab communities, specifically the Chaldean uh, community, have resources and they're providing a form of stores. Mm-hmm. Right now, just even the prevalence of um, 
the uh, the marijuana dispensaries right. that just popped up overnight right. and uh, massively owned right. by like primarily these same Chaldean families that own strip clubs, that own liquor stores, that own grocery stores, that own, um, you know, that own cell phone uh, stores, bars, <laughs> cell phone stores. <laughs> Uh, 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 low lending, you know, payday lending mm-hmm. places, but just like uh, services that could be seen as as exploiting. And then I'm one of the people that argue that a lot of these services are exploiting the black community mm-hmm. uh, and, and exploiting poverty. But that those are the stores that exist. What right. what's that? Uh, what was that take like? Just seeing as like as a younger person, um, and in a community, especially like you know, East Seven Mile is definitely. You know, East Seven Mile, Van Dyke. Right. You know, that's prevalent. Seeing it. So back in the 90s, when I was coming up, you had um, the the drug trafficking was really prevalent in that area as well. And so Mm -hmm. you had the dichotomy of the Chaldean community on the come up and families owning liquor stores and families owning uh, Coney Islands and and think grocery stores, uh, not true grocery stores, but the supermarket for the neighborhood, Mm -hmm. right? And so you had these families that are coming into the African-American experience and they're looking at our our buying habits and and, and all those things and yes, capitalizing on that. Um, But I look back, had had to take the curtain back a little bit pull that back and understand what the nature of their culture is. The majority of the Iraqi Christians that landed in Detroit were from the northern part of Iraq and they were villagers. And so their their whole um, historical reference and who they were embedded in them is merchants. Mm-hmm. And you find them in the Old Testament, the, Cal- the Church of the Chaldees, those are the lineages, the Chaldeans, and they were merchants by trade. So it wasn't an emphasis on education and going to, to become a CEO or a doctor, like what you will see in Lebanon Muslim community in Dearborn, you're going to see them on their grind going to school, going to Michigan, getting the full RAV 4.0. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the Chaldeans, the Iraqi Christians, they were merchants. So they're they're just following, following the trajectory of their lineage. And yes, in certain points, monopolizing the system because we as a community of black culture we didn't think ahead to say okay you know what we're gonna get behind that black business owner that has opened up the local store the penny candy store that we had we had one in my neighborhood a penny candy store we all wanted to support them Mm -hmm. then the liquor store opened up we like well shoot i could stop at the liquor store instead of walking two two doors down to go to the penny candy store anymore um and then if you notice the liquor store started closing up as the population in Detroit started dwindling, especially after the housing crisis, the liquor store started uh, closing up. So then it became the cellular stores. Then it became, I'm, I'm going to do a, um, and I can't even remember the name of the grocery store, not Audi, but the other one. Um, you had all these stores that just started opening up and, and the Chaldeans followed that. And then they moved out of the Seven Mile John R area. They started moving to Sterling Heights, Madison Heights, Troy. You go to Seven Mile and John R, you will be hard pressed to find a Chaldean family. And if you do find a Chaldean family, it was because it was a family that couldn't afford to relocate when the exodus happened. Mm-hmm. All right. So new takes, uh definitely some information. You get something every day. That's why I start these discussions. <laughs> um I would say that, you know, and this is the entrepreneur in me and the my own perspective i think that sometimes the barriers of entry for business for that black owner even in such a predominantly black city is higher barriers of entry um uh especially when we look at like the way that uh coney islands uh um 
pooled the resources to support the other Coney Islands that do exist. Right. Um, and then also uh, within those barriers of entry, uh, different. It's a, it's another level of scrutiny that most of us black entrepreneurs will face. Right. Uh, that I'm sure my Arab brethren is not facing just just i can only imagine what would happen if a bunch of black men own these marijuana dispensaries right. in detroit like right. the 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 idea of that whole concept i don't think our our current mayor or city council or state government for that matter would be complicit in allowing like in a matter of two years you know 60 locations to just right. pop up out of anywhere and look at look the other part that really concerns me as, as still that my parents still live at seven mile well mm-hmm. between seven mile and Otter drive off van dyke on bliss street mm-hmm. is the amount of marijuana dispensaries from eight mile in van dyke yeah. to six mile in van dyke yeah. to the fact that the city of detroit has allowed dispensaries in their community in the first place you go north of eight mile even on the northern side of eight mile you will see no dispensaries yeah, so so right. you so you have allowed Detroit to be just this dumping ground. You've had the strip club industry just take over the Detroit yeah. side of Eight Mile. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see the same amount on the uh, suburban side of Eight Mile. And so all those things feed into city council and the mayor. You can say what you want to say about how you wanted the city to come back and how you're now going to take a shift to neighborhoods. But why should I walk out my parents' door at soon to be 70 and 73 years old and I could smell marijuana right there at their door because of all these dispensaries? And if I go one mile north and cross over eight mile, I'm not going to smell it at all. What is that about? And so I can say you if, if you if your choice of entrepreneurship is to own dispensaries, that's all fine and well, but you got to meet me halfway in regards to the number, the overabundance, the saturation of these industries in our neighborhoods. And it's OK in our neighborhoods, but it's not OK in yours. Yeah. And I think those are the arguments that have always existed as like I've even, you know, in hip hop, like we've done all types of parties and strip clubs and everything. But the <laughs> saturation of it, like you say, it's it's. It's like 68 strip clubs in the state of Michigan and 43 of them are in Detroit. Right. So it's like of this whole state, that's a pretty big state. Right. You know, more than two thirds are within the city limits of Detroit. That's, right. And then some of the other ones are like, you know, other places populated by black, you know, the places yeah. with emergency managers, which happen to be the places with primarily <laughs> black people. You know what I'm saying? Right. Bitten Harbor. Right. Um, Flint, mm-hmm. Saginaw, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Grand Rapids where black people are. You know what I mean? Right. It's like it's the prevalence of this, you know, or an extremely impoverished white community. Right. You know. Right. So it it it, it plays on like many of these discussions, mm-hmm. which now in your current role um, and, I, and I'm, I move past King a little bit, but we're getting okay. deeper into this discussion. OK. Your current role. Now you play uh, looking at things from a federal level. Right. Uh, and seeing how uh, things are set up and, and traveling the nation. In the world. In the world. <laughs> but just traveling the nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been to different places like Houston, for instance, and I've seen how sanctions and zoning happens there. Yeah. Uh, even a city like D.C., zoning, this may be more of a Chris question, too. <laughs> zoning right. is a little bit different. But like now that you've been to so many other cities 
and you've seen something like dispensaries like how do you think the the zoning and the districting within cities should should happen what's your take on it uh there are some like as they say like green light zones where it's like look we really want to get things started we want to provide incentives we want to have uh tax uh you know no, no lower tax fees we want to get things tax going credits, like all those we want to like what's what's your take on what role do you feel that um a, a government can play in activating uh different resources for a community I think it federal the federal government can only move if a state allows them to move. So a lot of times we we our perception is that the federal government is the feds. They can just come in and we can just um, you know swoop down and we can just make things happen in the community. Yeah, That's because not, I mean in our community our, our idea of the feds yeah the feds is, what is like to Beach. <laughs> not, <laughs> not you know? necessarily a national park. You know? Right, they Yellowstone. <laughs> right, we're like the feds are coming right, and so. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> the reality is it's that local government that wow. has to raise their hand and say we want the feds to come in it's that governor mm. and it's that mayor that says hey feds we want you all to come in i would argue that it's the reverse it is is allowing the uh, from a grassroots perspective allowing those community members to have a true voice and have a true seat at the table i'll give you an example um my mom will probably if she, when she hears it she'll be like you talked about me more this i thought this was your interview but she's my point of reference lipke recreation center is right around the corner from their house from the house that i grew up in it, i just did a uh i just did uh, like some meeting over there okay so Never say play detroit say play detroit is not mitch albums organization is now running lipke but let me let's let's rewind a little bit a few years back Lipke was on the for sale list for the city of Detroit when they were liquidating everything. We just gonna sell everything. Lipke was on the list. Well, it was my mom's community center and her partners throughout the neighborhood, a little conglomerate of nonprofits that had petitioned the state of Michigan for funding to reopen Lipke, to not sell it. They had proven that the the most biggest concentration of youth in the city of Detroit reside in that 48234, 48211, I think, zip code, that Osborne mm -hmm. uh, zip code. Mm -hmm. And so having a recreation center closed where would these kids go so you can't just sell it and who do they want to sell it to they wanted to sell it to um the salvation army who wanted to put a dr drug rehabilitation center there and my mom's like i don't want a drug re rehabilitation center in my neighborhood i don't i don't feel that the kids if you're saying we have the largest concentration of youth in this community and then you're going to put a drug rehabilitation center so those people have to walk through those communities and bypass mm -hmm. these kids and have those interactions we're not taking that well they took their message all the way down to to city council they made little uh buttons out of out of uh, um, construction paper and some little you know safety pins and here these seniors are going down to city council like um i don't care who how much they're offering you you're not selling lipke they won lipke is now reopened mitch album partnered and the city of detroit is letting them have it for a dollar a year lease to restore it reopen it matthew stafford put his football field there the mm -hmm. detroit tigers put the da D judge damon keith baseball field there a soccer mm -hmm. field is going in there but it, if it had not been from that grassroots perspective just raising their little hand like 
hold up, this is not happening in my neighborhood. And I think that that's what I've seen around the country. There are pockets of this country where you can't even have a fast food restaurant in their community. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say with districting. Districting and and zoning. Community voice and the zoning. uh, There are definitely certain neighborhoods where even for like a liquor store has to be like right now this law just changed where um, it was a law where two liquor stores couldn't be next to each other mm-hmm, in Detroit. Mm-hmm. now that law has just changed so mm-hmm. i'm pretty sure we're about to see you know sam own liquor store one al own liquor store two and mike own liquor store three crazy in a row whereas in certain neighbor you know you, when you're in troy right finding a liquor store a beer and wine store or you go to yeah. states like, you know, Pennsylvania, where it's state run, or you go mm-hmm. to Virginia, you know, it's state run. Um, I think of having those individuals that really have a passion for it. So my mom's partner in crime is, is a white woman. Her name mm-hmm. is Pat Bosch. Uh, this dynamic duo, this black woman, my mom and Pat Bosch, the mm-hmm. white woman, they're the tag teams at the meetings. So mm-hmm. Pat, Pat's passion is zoning and mm-hmm. districts and all these things so my mom was like okay you go to that council briefing i'm gonna go over here and do and they tag team it but i'm thinking okay there's 70 73 75 who's coming behind them who's gonna be those champions behind them who's gonna care enough in their retirement life To be on city council's head on a regular basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, holding them accountable for what they said that they were going to do, making sure that they actually went out and got the petitions and the signatures from the community members before you gave the permit for that business to open in that neighborhood. Who's doing that checks and balance? And if we don't train up the next generation to be those watchdogs and expose them to these types of people, I fear that. We're going to eventually have a community where you're going to have a, a, all the seven miles just going to be liquor stores or all the seven miles is going to be dispensaries because there's not someone there that's raising their hand and say, no, that's not OK, Mayor Duggan. No, that's not OK, City Council President. We got to do better by our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Downtown is downtown. But these neighborhoods, we gotta, we're in a, for a real fight. And I think that it, that's where we're at right now is at that crossroad. Either we're going to let it go and let them do what they do. Or we going to rise up and do what we do. Okay, so you talk about doing what we do. Do what we do. I had, the Detroit came out. Just, yeah, I was going to say, you, <laughs> yeah, I came to D.C. and I got... I got I the just, D came out. Got, people just got schooled on a whole lot of layers of some of the challenges in, as we say, bringing back the neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, and opportunity. Um, opportunity led you to D.C. Yes. Uh, as you're one of the people that... Uh, has has learned right at the the feet of your mom and then having this discussion i didn't even know all of these layers of you. i just met your mom in passing <laughs> but this makes sense because as they say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree right. um it's opportunities you get here and different things happening here that never were to happen in detroit right. and it's different things nepotism uh it's uh just not as many resources what what are some of the things that like uh, that you saw when you got to D.C. for you and your career and your goals and, and, and your passions, those doors that open that you feel were shedding in Detroit? So 
I had shared before we even came on camera was that I had reached out to numerous people. My passion always was at that intersection of like um, corporate social responsibility, philanthropy, um, how corporations could do more in communities with community development. And so I started reaching out to vice presidents of community relations for different corporations in the city to see if I can I get an internship. And at that point, I think. I had my bachelor's for sure, so I probably had about five or six years of work experience at that point. Knew that I wanted to do something a little different, um, and I could get nowhere. The only person who returned my call and gave me an opportunity for an internship was Congressman Conyers. He was like, you know what? You want to come in? You want to do some things? Okay, come on in. That was at about year seven or eight outside of, of bachelor's degree. But other people that I called was just kind of... You know, giving me the spinning. stiff arm, like, okay, because you might be coming up on my heels, and I don't want to go ahead and give you that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I was reaching out to people that looked like me. I'm like, well, okay, we're going to have this 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 um, support system. People who look like me are going to support me. I get to D.C. The people who have supported me and, and, and my promotions that I have received over the last few years have been from people that don't look like me. And I had to reach back to who I was in middle school when I talked about that my, my middle school was half uh, a different culture. I had to recognize that all opportunities likely will not come from people that look like you. And there's nothing wrong with that. But now that I'm chief of staff, you better believe I'm making sure that doors are open to young people of color that look like me. And I'm also opening up doors to other cultures that never would get an opportunity. Homeland Security headquarters? How would you even land that job? How would you I, even I'm still, know I'm still how to? How you I'm still wondering. You know? It probably got me on the phone like, oh, hell no. <laughs> 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 like that episode of the Boondocks where Riley was uh, getting interviewed for the Obama. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, and, and it was even more, and I, and I do have to say, you know, God is just amazing because I came in on one administration. I joined DHS under the Obama administration. And mm -hmm. one would think that all of my opportunities would have come during that administration mm -hmm. because it was his people that, that were my bosses. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, I in the last year and a half, three promotions. Hmm. If you think about who's been in office the last year and a half, call him 45, call him Trump, whatever you want to call him, mm -hmm. That's where my promotions came. So I had to take a step back that neither one of these presidents are my source. Mm -hmm. That what is for me and the timing of God is always perfect. What is for me is going to be for me. But every step I had to use that opportunity to reach back and make sure that as I'm as doors are being open to me, I'm also looking in the rearview mirror and seeing who can I open some doors for along the way because we are going up. It's not just about me. I know that I'm here for a time and a season. And whatever, however long God is going to have me here in D.C., I pray it's not forever. This is not where I want to just mm -hmm. stay. <laughs> um, but for such a time as this, I'm here. And I think that those opportunities have, have to be extended to underrepresented communities so that they, too, know that that exposure is planting a seed. Um, okay. Now I do have to ask this question. Go ahead as, and ask uh, it. I've uh, as I've I'm as I've extended this. some opportunities myself. Now I'm from a different perspective. I mm -hmm. have a smaller organization and everything, so mm -hmm. I don't know under the veil of federal government if people look at it. But sometimes people think they're ready for something, then they end up in that position and they're just not ready. True. 
Um, how and I'm still I still wrestle with that where it's like, damn, you know, this is a great this is a great chance. You won't be better. Um, like here's a, a short story. I remember one time it was like a bunch of rappers and I'm like, okay, if I really want to help this rap group, they can't be selling weed and getting arrested and stuff. <laughs> so let me get them a job. They have no skill sets. Everybody dropped out of high school. I was like, I will help them make a street team. And uh, I got a contract. Uh, shout out to NG Akai. I got a contract oh, through yeah. NG Akai mm-hmm. and the trade events team. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like right, this is years ago when the last time the Red Wings won the championship. Okay. And it was a pretty solid like paying. All you have to do is pass on flyers. But when I started setting up these things, these are what I was thinking, like empathizing and being in their role, but just really weren't ready for that. They just right. wanted right. to sell weed, get high and rap. Right. You know what I mean? Um, so as you open these doors, how do you, you know, these are great opportunities, but some of us, especially like in that black experience, you know, success is something to fear in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like getting something that is like, wow, this is a great opportunity. Like as sometimes people say, you start smelling yourself or acting an ass or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. You know what I mean? Like as you open these doors and you see some of that, like, What's the what's the one on one? How how are you uh, being still present with somebody that you great gave an opportunity to as they are realizing? Yeah. So I have a perfect example as a young man who came in as an intern, um, first generation uh, college student and his family. Um, his family is from uh, Nigeria, but he's Nigerian American because he's born mm-hmm. here in the States. Um, so a young man of color. And he came in and he was definitely nervous to be our intern, you know, but I, I recognized I saw something in him. And I said, with the right mentorship, mm-hmm. with the right guidance, we're going to round this young man out. He ha- he had it, but he needed that support system because his family is back in Silicon Valley. Like, they're far, far away. So I started to reach out to him, and initially it was just so, you know, go take him to lunch every now and then and just really see how he's doing. Well, he has grown so much that another division within my chief of staff division said, hey, I would like to extend a permanent position to him. Mm-hmm called me I was in training in Boston uh, called me and, and asked me would it be okay what did I think about it and I said definitely yes but from that point of yes I then text him and said we're going to get together when I get back because I knew that I had to prepare him now because now you're not going from intern now you're going from intern to permanent federal employee that's a totally different conversation and as he prepares for his master's graduating with his master's it's coming next month mother's day weekend what a proud moment for that mother to come in and and what her son started as an intern in, in homeland security soon will become a permanent federal employee upon graduation that's where i'm saying that the, that the uh village that i don't have any kids but I know that it's my duty to reach back to these young folks because that generation Z millennial. So, so basically, being present through the opportunity can't can't just get an opportunity and bounce mm-hmm. because regardless of what we feel, especially f- people coming from underrepresented communities, there is more to the story than I opened a door to you. Because now I got to understand, does this young person have the attire for the meeting? Do I need to ask the question? 
do I need to go out and buy the tie? Do I need to go out and buy the shoes? And don't and make it a non-issue. Don't walk in. I got these shoes for you. Put the shoes on the desk. Keep it moving. Don't make it an issue because I already know that it took probably his parents scrapping up all that they had to even get them there to mm. just to get him to D.C., let alone to be in school in D.C. Mm. So why am I going to make that an issue? What I need to do is to figure out what resources do these young folks need or anybody really? What what resources do they need? Now, is it on me to provide the resource or can I get them connected to the resource? And that's it. And so I don't think it's a one and done type situation. This is a a long term commitment. So I'm careful even when people approach me and ask me to be their mentor. Because I don't look at mentorship as that I'm mentor on a sheet of paper. I got to calculate in my mind, just like you would go out on a date. I'm interviewing you to see, can you be mentored? Mm-hmm. You saying you want a mentor, but do you really want a mentor? I really want the bag. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I want the bag. <laughs> I don't want a mentor. You don't want a mentor. So you... you you have it goes both ways, and I think that mm-hmm. it's it's the commitment, the long term commitment. So to see more it. so the give or take of with it, mm-hmm. because uh, there there are so many different like layers, and I've been having this talk with Chris, and I kind of had to talk with Mashara the other day, um, of of what role we play as race is still such. Uh, uh, it's not even an elephant in the room. The the museum that we went through here, amazing. Mm-hmm. But race is just played has played such a, a role, especially yes. us as black people. Like yes. if anything, racism is America's first institution. Right. You know. Right. And, and the role that it plays uh, from dealt with it from Native <laughs> Americans to black Amer- from stealing the land. <laughs> right. And stealing the labor. Right. You know, it's uh, it, it plays a heck of a role. And then that. The, the wounds on both sides and the post-traumatic stress disorder that white people have and we as black people have sound like Booker T. Washington <laughs> but it ex- it's existent it's, it's ever present in so many of us and, and what you know what traumas we're going through yeah. for these different things to to exist so it's shifting from there Detroit now because you, you come back not all the time I'm there what a have lot. you seen? What have <laughs> you seen in the transitions of what's happening in Detroit? Um, what is it like to you now? And then you have more of an international perspective of cities. Period. What's what's uh, what's your take on Detroit right now? I'm loving the energy that I'm hearing from all over the world as I travel and find out. You know, people find out, oh, you're from Detroit. Like, oh, my gosh, amazing things are happening in Detroit. Amazing things are happening in Detroit. But I will say, um, you know, prior to coming to Homeland Security, I was at a nonprofit for 10 years. We provide free, they provide now, we, they provide free legal assistance to families facing mortgage foreclosure and and property tax foreclosure and landlord-tenant eviction cases, right? So I was at the front of that interaction, especially the housing crisis of 2008, but even before then, looking at, you know, slumlords that were having people stay in these horrible condition um, housing situations. And so going to transitioning from that to homeland, it was like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm far removed from that. But the reality is downtown, like I just said, is going to be okay. When I drive through neighborhoods, when I go home, I'm trying to figure out who packed up their bags and turned off the lights on some of these neighborhoods 
and decided that everyone just fend for themselves because we're going to focus on Midtown and Downtown. We are going to trickle a little bit into um, um, Green Acres, you know, Woodward and in that area and the, the new development at Woodward and A-Mile. That's all great. But there are some families who either couldn't leave Detroit, couldn't leave the city, couldn't get out, or who chose to stay. It's those families that I want to reach. Those th- those are the families that I'm concerned about because when I drive down some of these these streets, I'm thinking when Dave Bing had his idea of like, oh, close off one part of the city, shut off all the lights and them, do eminent domain, move those families mm-hmm. out. You know, I'm thinking, he's crazy. Like, why would you do that? And I drive down some of these streets and I'm thinking, there's one house on this street. At one point, there was no vacant land in Detroit. So that means that was houses mm-hmm. that have now been demolished those are mm-hmm. families that are now no longer there and so my take on it I, my mom and i went home i wanted to, to ride the queue line so we were all waiting on the queue line we're at the boulevard and woodward waiting on the queue line we get downtown people looking at us like what y'all doing here and i'm thinking i was born in hustle hospital don't look at me like i don't belong here this is my city i rep mm-hmm. this town better than you ever will so don't give me that judgment look like mm-hmm. Why are you down here in our downtown? Um, I think that that now, again, that that energy that has come with all these different companies want to come into the city and you've got some young adults who are willing to pay three hundred thousand dollars for a condo in downtown Detroit is just like insane to me. But that's D.C. prices. That's New York prices. You know, so the city is on the come up. But what I need to catch up is the energy that we're putting into our neighborhoods and, and into those families who, again, either couldn't leave or chose not to leave. My parents, again, knocks on their doors regularly. Do you want to sell your home? My dad finally mm-hmm. told this one guy, do you see a for sale sign? No, I don't want to sell my home. So people are getting bold and they're doing it here in D.C. Gentrification is real all around this country. I've seen it city to city to city. We're having these same conversations mm-hmm. of gentrification. It has not hit Highland Park as of yet. Okay. The buyer beware. <laughs> <laughs> or Hamtramck. <laughs> um, it is not. <laughs> um, but even this neighborhood that we're sitting in right now, when I first uh, moved out here, this this what this didn't look like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even a few miles south of here, it didn't look like this. And so mm-hmm. when we see how these communities are bouncing back and people choose now that living in the urban center is cool and it's fun, mm-hmm. then I'm going to displace and price out people. For instance, you know I did events in the city. Yeah, I did events all over the city before yeah, I left. Yeah, yeah. I was. I mean, that's that's how we met. You, yeah, yeah, you were. Um, if uh, more so than me, like if I've ever seen somebody like take their own money and put it into an event and really need to try to make some money back, that was you. <laughs> yeah. So I'm turning forty in a couple of months. Not 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 ashamed to say it. Turning forty in a couple of months. Want to do my party in the D. It's like, you know what? I'm going to go home and do my party. That's mm-hmm. where my peeps are. Let's go home and do a party. You know we did events. Yes. The, the prices yeah. that these folks are throwing out to me on the phone is disrespectful. Nah, I'm like. Nah, you, but, yeah, you should you should have been. Detroit is different. It's down for that. We'll, we'll help you with that. You know, thank you. And actually, um, somebody in the room, we'll do it at a place with uh, another young lady in the room. So okay. And we're going to do something. We're going to make something happen. We're going to make something happen. But my point is the Detroit then and now had culminated to me, became very real to me as I started calling these venues. Because I'm thinking 
10 years ago, this this would have been a non-issue. I'm bringing I'm bringing business to you. Yeah. So, you throwing out 7,000, 13,000 Yeah, no. for a venue, right? Yeah. Let's me know though. You have now put a barrier. You put a wall up to the men and women who kept this city going, mm-hmm. who kept the city afloat, to those small and medium-sized business owners who said, you know what, I'm keeping my barbershop open, even if business is slow. I'm going to keep my nail salon open, even if business is slow, because I believe in the city that I've invested in. And you have now just swooped in and it's like, you don't matter. Yeah. I'm going to go over here and put my business there. And so I think that, again, it's that um, economic security that we've got to look at for our small and medium sized business owners in Detroit, those who decided to stay. Mm-hmm. And then those homeowners and even those renters who decided to stay. And then the next layer are the individuals who couldn't leave okay. because once they get yeah. up, it's a lot of it's <laughs> a lot that want. Yeah, it's a lot to feel trapped and wanted to mm-hmm. be. But mm-hmm. that's that's unique. So yeah, I definitely we will definitely Detroit is different. We'll be hands on with the with the Corinda party, <laughs> the photo. We'll do it. We'll do it. Back out. We, we will do it. We will do it. So um, that's all cool. Like uh, great takes. This was like a deeper Detroit discussion than I thought it would be. Uh, classic Detroit is different questions that I have for you three. Uh, what was your very first car? Uh, what year did you get it and what year making model was it? This story makes me so sad. So my first car was a 1979 Chevy Impala. Okay. My grandfather bought it for me. He was down in Drummond's, Tennessee, which is outside of Memphis. Yeah, I'm like, I have no idea. What yeah, it's outside of Memphis. My dad flew down to Drummond's, to, to Memphis, and then to Drummond's, mm-hmm. drove it back. I had that car maybe a month or two before someone on the block decided that they wanted it they needed it back more than i needed it that's that's what we call hood even with tithing. even with the that's club on call, it didn't uh, matter that's what we call tithing the hood <laughs> they had, had to tie the Pay hood that 10 percent yeah they took the whole they got 179 impala a 79 impala you realize that that car is amazing in body <sighs> it was clean Oh yeah, you should have known. And, and, and out of driving Van Dyke, you, you were driving, yeah, breathing, you, breathing. You went to CVS one time, and then it was like, oh, went to the Eleven Precinct. They just kind of looked at me like, you young lady, that. you. So they did find it. It was completely stripped. Oh yeah. Um. So that was my first car, oh. junior year of high school, nineteen ninety five. Well, we can at least go back to this story. Where was the first place you drove to when you got it? Hmm. I think it was school, King. So you just drove to school. Yes. And parked in the, uh, in the, student, in the student lot, lot off Lafayette. King. Sure did. See, this is how you knew you had a good car. <laughs> like, did you park up front in the student lot? If you had a, like, <laughs> I don't really like my ride, you just walked the whole student no, lot. No, well, the Impalas, you know, they're huge. Yeah. So you just got to, like, kind of get in where you so fit you in. Really, so. Your parking skills at that point right. were not where they were. If they were tight, you would have been like, yeah. on the curve, like, what's up? I had to pull in. There was no backing in this thing. You didn't have the mirrors weren't right yet. So I had to just <laughs> pull in, <laughs> get in where you fit in. Bashar, yeah, Bashar's journey with uh, parallel parking was that type of <laughs> that type of experience. As well. <laughs> All right. Don't put people on the spot. <laughs> yes. Um, very first. Um, okay, you're the DJ. 
it's the end of the fireworks. You get to play three songs. Oh, um, man. You're at Woodward and Jefferson. What three songs are you playing? At Woodward and Jefferson? Mm-hmm. Dang. I don't know. Wait, Detroit songs? It's whatever. You're The fireworks just ended. You get, you're the DJ. You get to play three songs. What are you playing? Um... I don't know. I so I do know that it would be something in the nineties. Okay, um, you gotta start picking. You can't just like uh, that's a very broad. What's that way. one song like? Hey, Mister DJ. That's that Zane song. Hey, Mister DJ. It's Hey, Mister DJ. So there we go. One. one. Um, and then something R and B related. Um, so Mary J. What's the four one one, hun? Okay, that's Mary <laughs> J. And. And Grand Poobah. And Grand Poobah. Okay. I'm just going to keep uh, myself in the 90s. Brand newbie in the other day. They was talking about Grand Poobah. And then maybe something by 112. What song? Uh, I don't know. You got to pick something. Um, hmm, I don't know. Somebody help me out in the studio. You got to. Nah, you got to (laughs) pick. I mean, you know, they only had one album in the 90s. Uh, Probably. Yeah. Or was that other one? No, they had another one with uh. What's uh, oh, pretty brown eyes, pretty pretty oh, brown eyes, mint condition. condition. There we go. Okay, all right. It had to be in the nineties though. Okay, yeah, that's okay. definitely nineties. I made it. All right, so as many events as you want as you did, I'm surprised you didn't have that offer. Your so brother here, gonna be like, here's the thing. So key point about Corinda. Corinda likes to do events. Corinda put is. A logistician, logistician. She just puts events together. Coordinator. When you're, no, I don't. The music. Usually, I'll know the song. I won't know the artist. This is just true story. Mm -hmm. I'll know the song. I won't know the artist. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll like the beat. Won't know who produced it. Then that's where my brother comes in, and he he Mm -hmm. lays all that information out for me. So he he's my briefer. I get briefed up. From him, and then I'm ready. That's how it mm-hmm. goes. All right. So with that being, uh, with that being said, uh, the last question: Rename Woodward after one Detroiter. Who would it be and why? Woodward after one Detroiter. Wow. Hmm. You know what? I'm going. I'm going all in here. Karen L. Washington. Your mom's. I'm with that. Karen L. Washington Boulevard for a transplant from 18 year old coming to Detroit from a little town called Clearfield, Pennsylvania. And she passed through she, Flint too. She <laughs> passing through Flint. She's the most dedicated Detroiter I know. So I'm gonna give it to her. Karen L. Washington Boulevard. Okay, I'm with it. <laughs> I'm, I'm with it. I'm, I'm completely with it. And nothing's more Detroit than living in Flint long enough to realize that you need to come down right. 75. <laughs> One hour south. I got a lot of yeah, I got a lot of family members. I was like, what you talking about? I still have family in Flint and they don't hurt me, but hey, seventy five south. That's got all a I bunch can of say. family in Flint. Hey, country is all good. Up. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank you so much. If people want to get in contact with you or whatever, reach out. Uh I don't know. Well, you know what? We forget all of that. We're gonna talk a little that? bit about the party. That's what we're oh, gonna right. put. They'll okay. see they'll see you'll get a chance to meet her in person. Yes. Party. Yes. Uh, a D where a DJ will know songs. <laughs> yes. And we'll go from there. Yes. All right. Thanks, Kari. All right, peace. <laughs> peace.
Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store.